0: What's going on guys? Welcome back to the control room. I'm your host Esrael Yohannes. Now that we're a quarter of the way into the NBA season, we can start focusing more on some relevant stats while still providing context to the game. We're going to figure out the identities of these teams as we look through statistics. And we can tell based on the ones that are in contention for the playoffs and contention for the NBA championship. what would be successful points for a certain team and what could be their drawbacks, what could be their Achilles heel. So as we get further and further into the season, those averages will start to stabilize and we can really look and check the identity of all the teams that are in contention for all of those events down the line. So for our teams, the Mavericks, the Pelicans, the Thunder, we're going to do a bit of a recap over their last week. For the Mavs, they ripped off three straight wins entering Tuesday. One of those wins was against the Memphis Grizzlies on the road. However, Desmond Bain had eight assists, and Triple J, Jaron Jackson Jr., scored 41 points on the Mavs. Could that spell trouble for a matchup with, say, the Lakers and beyond? For the Pelicans, Zion and the crew got waxed by the LA Lakers in Las Vegas, but they bounced back against the best in the West, in Minnesota. Although, we're going to need a reality check on Zion Williamson. For the Thunder, they struck down the Warriors in OT again for a 3-1 season series finish. And, J-Dub, Jalen Williams, showed off some skills. So we're going to talk about all that in this episode. First up, the Mavs' last three games. The results of these three games were December 6th at home versus Utah, a 147-97 drubbing, followed by a game against Portland on December 8th in Portland. That was a 125-112 to win. And then on December 11th at Memphis, it was a win of 120-113. to Through this stretch, Luka has been fantastic. He's had seven straight 30-plus point games entering Tuesday, and the only game he had missed along that stretch was December 1st versus Memphis for personal reasons, like the birth of his daughter. For the Mavs, points in the paint and three-point field goals has been one of those balancing acts. Because to score from three, you can't score in the paint, and vice versa. For the Mavs, they scored a season-high 62 paint points at Portland. Re- remember, Portland has DeAndre Ayton. And in the first half, they scored 38 paint points. That was a season high in any half for the Mavs. They finished the game with a 42.9% three-point rate, which tied the sixth lowest for them this season. And then to counteract the fact that they weren't taking as many threes as they normally do, they shot 36 of 41, which was 87.8% from the free throw line over those last two games. So the Mavs were finding alternative scoring it's not like they weren't making the threes they just based on the defense that was given to them they went into the paint a little bit more and they executed and they came out on top so for that Memphis game the first quarter really laid the groundwork for where that game was going to go because the Mavs shot 10 of 23 from the floor which is about 43.5 percent not great but from two they shot 9 of 15, which is 60%, and they scored 18 paint points there. So all 9 of those field goals that were made were made in the paint. But from outside, they shot 1 of 8, about 12.5%. They made up for that by shooting 8 for 8 from the free throw line. But then the second quarter, the second quarter came in and the Mavs took over. The Mavs shot 14 of 21 from the floor, 66.7%. 8 of 10 from 2, 6 of 11 from 3, 4 of 4 from the free throw line, 7 fast break points, and 12 points off turnovers. Right, So we're looking at how efficiently the Mavs are shooting in that quarter and the miscellaneous scoring that can help substitute when there are deficiencies elsewhere. But in this quarter, there almost was no deficiency. So the Mavs just took off in the second, and they didn't really look back after that point. In the first half alone, Dallas had... 12 of 12 free throws. 11 of them came from Luka Doncic. He shot a perfect 11 of 11 from the free throw line in the first half. The only other free throw attempt and make came from Derrick Jones Jr. So, with all that being said from the Memphis game, what does that mean when dealing with the Lakers? Because the, the Lakers are coming into... Dallas for a Tuesday night matchup by the time you see this episode or hear this episode that game will already be over and we'll break that one down too but entering this matchup the Mavs are on a second night of a back-to-back and what's unfortunate about the scheduling in this situation is that the Mavs were the only NBA team with two tip-offs that were less than 24 hours apart at least for teams that were on the second night of a back-to-back. So they played Memphis at 7 o'clock Central Time in Memphis, and then once that game was over, they had to fly to Dallas and then have a 6.30 tip-off at home against the Lakers. And there was no other team in the NBA that played on a second night of a back-to-back on Tuesday night that had that short of a turnaround. For Everyone else's was at least 24 hours or more. On top of that, the Lakers were on two days rest because they had gone to the in-season tournament championship game, which was played Saturday in Las Vegas. There were no NBA games on Sunday, and then they didn't have a game scheduled on Monday. They actually, on a first night of a back-to-back, because they play the Mavericks on Tuesday night, and then they have to be in San Antonio and play... On Wednesday night. So the Lakers have a bit of rest going into this game. The Mavs just don't. On top of that, you have the injuries to guys like Kyrie Irving, who's out with a heel contusion. Grant Williams had missed some time. Tim Hardaway Jr. had some back spasms, so he couldn't play in the the Monday game against Memphis. So what was this going to look like? First, let's really break down how the Lakers defended Indiana in the in-season tournament final, or as I would like to see it be called from here on out, the NBA cup final. Why I want to bring up this matchup is because the Indiana Pacers have a similar offensive identity to the Mavericks. They, they take a good amount of threes. They're a high powered offense. The one thing that they don't have that the Mavs somewhat have is a defensive interior. Although Miles Turner is the presence that they have in the paint, he can block some shots, similar to Derek Lively, and he's really good in the pick-and-roll game, the defense as a whole for Indiana is not as sufficient as the one in Dallas. But because of their offensive identities, their similar offensive identities, and the way that Tyrese Halliburton plays versus how Luka Doncic plays, This matchup is one to really look at. So the Lakers defended the Pacers where, at least first, let's talk about how the Pacers were playing up into this point in the season. They average 104.2 shooting possessions per game, and that's second most in the NBA. They attempt 38.5 threes per game, and that's the sixth most in the NBA. And just as a reminder, all these numbers and ranks are entering Tuesday. They don't include Tuesday's games. And then from the three-point line, the Pacers average 38.2%. At the time, that's seventh in the NBA. In the in-season tournament final slash NBA Cup final, the Pacers had 109.5 shooting possessions. How that's calculated? Because how can a possession be half, right? It's actually a mathematical equation. It's field goal attempts plus the... free throw attempts times 0.44, right? So you're going to multiply 0.44 and the total number of free throw attempts, that combination is added to the field goal attempts, and then that's how you get your shooting possessions. So numerically, that would be 95 plus, and in parentheses, 0.44 times 33. Yes, the Pacers had 33 free throw attempts. So that's what led to the 109.5 shooting possessions. And the significance of that stat, why I bring it up, and why I break down the math in that, is because it at least showcases how you have some possessions that end up at the free throw line, where you might take a two, and that two-point attempt is not counted because the ball doesn't go in the basket, but you get free throws out of it. And not all free throws are created equally. Some are off technicals. Some are for various reasons but most of the time they come off of missed shots so it's an estimate as to how many true possessions a team would have so for the pacers they had 109 and a half shooting possessions in that game against the lakers in vegas and then from three this is where it got interesting they shot 10 of 41 which is 24.4 percent from three and then from the free throw line remember they had 33 attempts they made 29 of them. So they converted 87.9% of their free throws. That's how they were able to stay in the game. Because when you, only, when you shoot below 25% from three, there's almost no way you can stay in the game unless you find a substitute for those points. And for the Pacers, it was the free throws. Why does this matter for Dallas, though? The Lakers hold their opponent to 36% from three. That's 13th in the NBA. The Mavs shoot 37.4% from three. That's 10th in the NBA. The Lakers allow 48.2 paint points, which is 13th in the NBA. And the Mavs score 45 paint points per game. That's 27th in the NBA. So Clearly, their offensive ideology is not to be within the paint, although they can take advantage of it at times, such as, how they did it against Portland when they scored 62. But for the most part, the Mavs tend to take care of their scoring from outside because the analytic is that three is more than two. That's if you make them. And for the most part, the Mavs have actually been making them. Now, the interesting thing about all this is that the Mavs are one in five this season. When they shoot below 37.4% from three and score fewer than 50 paint points. And their only win was against the Lakers at Crypto.com Arena, where they almost blew the lead because they couldn't buy a three in the fourth quarter until Kyrie bailed them out. So, really, there was a chance that the Mavs could have been 0 6 with that low of a three point field goal percentage and their lack of productivity in the paint so you basically can't you can't get killed on both ends you have to pick one right if you're making your threes great stick with them because they're going to be worth more than your points in the paint if you are not making your threes you have to substitute them elsewhere you go in the paint you look for miscellaneous categories so that's the barometer statistically for how the Mavs should counter the Lakers defense on the flip side The Lakers have been shooting the lights out from three the last couple of games, especially since they got into Vegas. For the season, though, the Lakers shoot 34.3% from three, and that's 25th in the NBA. The Mavs allow 36.5% from three, the 17th best defense in the NBA from three. The Lakers score 54.7 paint points, which is fifth in the NBA. That has a lot to do with Anthony Davis and the ability of LeBron James to cut to the basket and bully his way from the elbow. But in the Lakers' last two games, those two games in Vegas, they shot 39.6% from three, and they scored 69 paint points. The Mavs are 0-4 this season when allowing 34% from three, And at least 55 paint points. So, defensively, the Mavs have to look at the Lakers and say, okay, they've been hot as of late. So, to kind of mess with their rhythm, you can't let them erupt from three. They're probably going to get their paint points, so do your best to limit what you can, but just don't let them kill you from both ends. Now, as I spoke on Anthony Davis and LeBron James, Anthony Davis Lee is fourth in the NBA with 16 paint points per game this season, and LeBron James is second with 4.9 fast break points per game this season. And those fast break points tend to end at the rim, right at the cup, and so those will count as paint points as well. At least for the most part. So that's a bit of a matchup problem. Just a bit. So now let's rewind to Memphis. Why did I mention that that Memphis game was a red, maybe a red herring or just a mirror into the Mavs looking at how they should contain a bigger body like Jaron Jackson Jr. And that would translate to Anthony Davis. So Jaron Jackson Jr. had 41 points on 15 of 29 shooting. That's 51.7%. Six of ten from three. Six of ten from three. That man basically plays center. And he shot five of five from the free throw line. And then Desmond Bain, on top of his 28 points, shot 11 of 20, 55% from the floor, and had eight assists. And all eight of those assists were threes. That's why I brought up Desmond Bain's assist, because it would be one thing if he were assisting to a cutting man in the basket to the basket, if he was getting someone going to the lane, if it was one kick out that led to another, every single assist generated a three. That's 24 points off of assists. That's incredibly hard to do and it's something that Desmond Bain can't even control. So defensively, the Mavs were dealing with a style of play that Luka operates in. Where you command so much attention in the middle. And then when you kick out, you got three-point shooters everywhere. Everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And if they were to let that leak out against the Lakers, who have been shooting really well from three, they might be in a bit of trouble, considering that the Lakers already have their number in the paint. So it's just one thing to look at as to where do the Mavs need to limit the Lakers? That leads to Derek Lively II because he got hurt in the last game against the Lakers, and after he got off the floor, the Mavs were able to bring their lead up to 20, but then the Lakers went on a fourth quarter run that overtook the lead until Kyrie took it back. But having him on the floor made such a difference in that game, and you could feel why you needed to have a big body like him and Richon Holmes at times, but de- definitely Derek Lively II. You needed a, a guy like him, a center like him, to be that anchor, even if he was going to foul a little bit more than normal. For Derek Lively II in Memphis, he scored 16 points on 8 of 9 shooting, 88.9%. He also tied a career high in rebounds with 16, had two assists and a block. That was his fourth career double-double, and that is third among rookies behind Victor Wimpanyama and Chet Holmgren. So then, when you factor all of these points that were made going into this Lakers-Mavs game, how did they perform? Well... both teams actually performed really well. So spoiler alert, the Mavericks won the game, 127 to 125. How they got there was insane. Because as I look at the box score, the Lakers shot 53.8% from the floor, the Mavs 49.4%. These teams almost couldn't miss. There was a stretch where There wasn't a missed bucket, and that's probably why the rebounding numbers were so low. The Lakers had 40, the Mavs had 36. Those are low even for them. On top of that, from three, the Lakers extended their streak of hot shooting and shot 15 of 29, 51.7% from three. The Mavs, on the flip side, shot 21 of 43. All right, so just under a 50% three-point rate, but they were converting so many of them that it was way worth it to take advantage of the threes than it was from the twos, where they shot 23 of 46, which is only about 50%, right? So as I've said in the past, if you are making more than 40% of your threes and less than 60% of your twos, then statistically you can justify going for the threes, especially if they continue to go in. The reason why that is, is if you take 10 attempts, 10 field goal attempts from two and 10 from three, from two, if you convert six of them, you generate 12 points off of them. If you attempt 10 threes and convert four of them, you generate 12 points as well. So that's where the 60% from two and the 40% from three equal out to 12 and 12 points generated on each side. And when you have an improvement from the three-point percentage and not so much from the two, then you lean in that direction. If it goes the opposite direction where you're going below three and that margin that you're getting from two is much greater than risking three-point attempts, then you try to go inside a little bit more. The Mavs shot 50% from inside and 48.8% from outside. So what are you going to do? You're going to shoot from outside. It's plain math. It's simple. On top of that, from the free throw line, the Lakers shot 12 of 18 and the Mavs shot 18 of 21. It's not like the Mavs to have 85% plus free throw, pers- free throw percentage shooting nights. But every time they have one of these, they win these clutch games. I, I don't even have a, a moment in my rundown to talk about how this was another clutch win for the Mavs. But all of the shooting that the Lakers and the Mavs did, like how how in the world did we get to the final score that we did? Because at some point, right, something else has to take over because the Lakers shot 34 of 62 from two and they scored 62 paint points, right? So now you're shooting 51.7% from three and you're scoring 62 points in the paint. And the Mavs entering Tuesday were 0-4 in this situation. They somehow won this game. How did they win this game when the stats are telling you you can't win this game? in the miscellaneous categories. So, although the Mavs were minus 20 in points in the paint, minus 5 in second chance points, they outscored the Lakers in fast break points, 16 to 13. They also turned the ball over less, five times less. But the Lakers were only able to score 11 points off of 10 Mavs turnovers, while the Mavs were able to score... 24 points off of 15 laker turnovers that to me was the difference in the game the points off the turnovers because the mavs are are so good at holding on to the ball entering tuesday they averaged 12 turnovers a game and that led the nba that was the best in the nba and now that average has gotten better because they turned the ball over less than 12 times so for a Lakers team that lost by two, yes, you missed six free throws. Anthony Davis is probably looking at himself like, I missed four. Had I made a couple more, this would have been a different game. But really, over the course of the game, the turnovers and the points off of them, the Mavs' ability to convert points off of Laker turnovers, made the biggest difference in the game to counteract what the Lakers were doing in the paint. Because the, the Mavs already had an advantage from points generated from three. They made six more threes. So they had an 18-point advantage on the Lakers from three to help balance out those 20 points in the paint that they, were, that they were surrendering in the margins. You add the points off turnover margin plus 13 on top of that, and then that's what the Lakers can look to as a way to explain their loss. For the Mavs, another clutch win. It was quite an exciting game watching it from start to finish. Aluka had this crazy pass where he was going around Jackson Hayes and split Hayes and Rui Hachimura and got it to, I think it was Dante Exum. Dante Exum hit a three, and this man had a career night from three. He made the most threes ever in his career with seven. He has a season-high 26 points now. The Mavs had three players score over 25. I mean, this was the kind of game where superstars came out, and yes, the Mavs were down with with their roster, but, and I didn't even mention this, having Grant Williams back on the floor, defending LeBron, taking that off of Luka, and then having Tim Hardaway Jr. come back from the back spasm and drop 32, 32 points. That man could not miss. He really could not miss. The depth of the Mavs, although they're injured, is one, of the, is one of the key points of contention as to how they're able to rack off these wins, how they're able to continually cause fits for other teams on top of their three-point shooting because a lot of their depth can shoot from three. They have the most players that shoot above 35% on their roster compared to every other team in the NBA. So because this is a strength for the Mavs and it's hard to defend... It's going, to be a continue, it's going to be a continuing point from game to game that teams are going to try to scout, teams are going to try to watch, and then Luka Doncic will just wreck your plans because he's breaking every defense you have, and that's what's getting these guys open. So as long as this team stays healthy, currently they're in, a, they're, I believe, a three spot in the West, although that will potentially change after the games on Tuesday conclude but after that game finished they were 3rd in the west and the mavs have something exciting to look forward to cuz now they're 15 and 8 they're excelling in the clutch they're excelling from 3 they're on a bit of a hot streak now they're on, they're on a four game win streak and they're going to need every bit of it going against minnesota because they have minnesota has the best defensive rating in the nba And if the Mass thought the Lakers were hard with defense, the Timberwolves are a problem. But that's for next time. Let's transition to New Orleans and Oklahoma City and break down their week sevens because we got some more topics to cover. That's next. Okay, let's talk about the New Orleans Pelicans because, as I said at the top of the show, they got waxed by the LA Lakers in Las Vegas. What do I mean by that? The Lakers blew them out of the desert with a 133-89 final score. And Zion Williamson scored only 13 points on 6-of-8 shooting. One of six from the free throw line. Two rebounds, three assists, three turnovers. His 13 points scored with the the third fewest points scored this season. He also had the fewest field goal attempts of any starter. And a couple of bench players, Trey Murphy III and Jordan Hawkins, at least matched his number of field goal attempts. Murphy III shot 5 of 13 from the floor. And Jordan Hawkins shot 2 of 8. And so although we know the identity of teams according to the season, for Zion it's hard because he doesn't play a full season. So I'm going to pull some stats from his 29 games last year because all he played was 29 games. Although he was quite dominant at times and looked like one of the best versions of himself at that time, especially those matchups against Phoenix at home in December of last year. Last season, he averaged 26 points on 60.8% field goal percentage, 71.4% from the free throw line, seven rebounds, and 0.6 blocks. This year, all of those categories have gone down. He's scoring 22.9 points per game, shooting 58.4% from the floor, just a little bit under, but not that far under. From the free throw line, however, he's shooting 65.8%. He's only grabbing 5.6 rebounds, and he's only recording 0.3 blocks. So some of these are a small drop-off, like the field goal percentage. Some of them are a bit larger, like the points, in his case, the rebounds, and the blocks. The blocks were cut in half. for Zion Williamson. When I watch him, he's a force to be reckoned with. It is it is difficult to guard him. It's difficult just watching guys try to guard him because he's so big, he's so powerful. When he comes at you, he's like a locomotive train. You're lucky to be alive if you make any contact with him. And so he understood based on his post-game answers and how he bounced back against Minnesota. That he needed to be more aggressive, considering he was the one guy that was shooting above 70% from the floor. He shot six of eight. That's 75%. Had he been more aggressive going into the paint, maybe trying to... Maybe the, the Lakers were trying to get the ball out of his hands a little bit more. Either way, the way... Zion can take over a game. He can just say, I don't care what you throw at me, I'm getting the ball into the basket. And he's done that before. He's done that time and time again. But in this game, he did not. And because it was a primetime game, because it was an in season tournament semifinal, everyone's eyes were on Zion Williamson. But it wasn't just the lack of aggression. There have been reports coming out of the New Orleans local area, one article specifically from the Times-Picayune, that the Pelicans are trying to get Zion on a diet, and he's not listening. Now, for me as someone who's not a professional athlete, but who has been involved in athletics for a long time, has gone through ups and downs of weights, maybe not to Zion's level, but as someone who at least knows the athletic nature of sizing up, sizing down, getting in a specific weight class, all of that, I can only try to picture myself in his situation. I can't exactly say, this is what you should do if you're trying to be a professional basketball player to the T. This is what you should do. I'll leave that to the professionals who've done it before. What I can show, especially as someone who looks at statistics, is his performance. And that's why I bring up what he did last season versus this season. Last season, he played 29 games. This season, he's gone through 20 games, including that Minnesota game. And because there is a drop-off in all these categories, and the eye test fools no one, he's running a little bit slower. He's not exactly finishing out offensive and and defensive concepts. He's not getting up and down the floor the way that he probably could if he were a bit more conditioned. Again, no matter how... Zion responds, no matter how analysts or, or hosts or pundits or reporters will make a case for Zion or against Zion, at the end of the day, it's all going to show in the numbers. It's all going to reflect, and the numbers don't lie. And because the numbers are objective, I can then use that as a way to make my case. It's not like I'm saying that Zion Williamson can't be the superstar that everyone expects him to be. But as the Mavericks organization and Mavericks fans have dealt with, with Luca, at some point, your body just can't keep up with that much of a schedule in the NBA. At some point, it starts to wear and tear on you. And so Luca has upped his conditioning and he's playing great basketball early in the season. There was a time where he didn't come in. He didn't come into the season in shape and he had, he didn't really show his superstar form until February when he got into better shape. That superstar form came in December. He got into even more shape going into this offseason, and he's been a superstar all season long for someone like Nikola Jokic who has said that he conditioned himself so that he could last through the season, through the playoffs, or at least there have been... It's been shown that he has worked out to the point where he wants to get himself ready for a playoff run such as the NBA Finals. And the fact that he was able to condition himself in that manner is what allowed him to play at peak physical condition in June. The Pelicans have not made it that far with or without Zion. It might take a playoff run for him to realize that where he is now is not going to be good enough because although he's doing fine in the first half of the season, he's not where he needs to be for this team to reach excellence. That all to say, the sooner that he figures it out, the better. Not just for him, but for the Pelicans as a whole. And I think Zion can get there, but he has to buy in. He has to believe that the work he's putting in matters. He has to look at his teammates and see that they're putting their all in. They want him to put his all in. And when everyone is all in, then they can reach the heights that they expect to be. Because as CJ McCollum said, why'd they lose that play-in game against the Thunder? Our guys weren't healthy. Our superstars weren't healthy. And Zion was the one guy who wasn't there. So Zion, you have to be there. He's not the only issue, though because for the pelicans this is it's more than just zion for for that lakers game zion alone can get you these wins from time to time but when what happened against the lakers happens it's hard to get over the hump for that specific game so i'm going to do a quarter by quarter breakdown again of the pelicans three point defense across 24 games. Their opponent 3-point field goal percentage on 3-point attempts in the first quarter was 34.7% on 10.3 attempts. In the second quarter it drops to 27.6% on 10.7 attempts. In the third quarter it spikes again to 39.8% on 9.2 attempts. And then in the fourth quarter it falls back down but is still kind of high at 35.2% on 9.5 attempts. The trend is still there, but now in the first quarter, it's getting a little bit worse. The second quarter is still their bread and butter. That's where you expect the Pelicans to really take a hold on a team, take a hold on a matchup, and build themselves a big enough lead so that when they have a third quarter collapse, it's not going to hurt them as bad. The problem is the Lakers said forget that because in the second quarter of that game against the Lakers, the Pelicans allowed, remember going into it 27.6% from three, which was first in the NBA, the Lakers shot seven of 14 from three in the second quarter. That's 50%. It almost looked like the Pelicans realized it was game over because they had been having this struggle almost every third quarter where if a team was going lights out from three in the third, well, based on where you were up until that point, you can adjust and try to find a way to win the game. They were getting blown out in the second. And then they got blown out in the third. Because the Pelicans normally allow 39.8% from three in the third quarter. That is all the way down at 25th in the NBA. The Lakers shot four of eight. The Lakers are not a three-point shooting team. They're 25th. They shot 4 of 8 from 3 in the third, 7 of 14 in the second. And they never looked back after that. It was, it was so bad that all the Pelicans starters, all the Lakers starters, sat in the fourth quarter. Now, I will acknowledge that the Pelicans, and especially Zion Williamson, bounced back at home against Minnesota. Zion had a season high of 36 points. And it's games like those where we say, okay, now we know you can do it. Where the issue is, is can you keep it up night after night after night after night? And that's where conditioning starts to make a name for itself. That's that's where your conditioning work really shows itself. Can you keep up that type of excellence over a long period of time? Because, yeah, you've silenced some critics or the Pelicans, and Zion, have silenced some critics from one game because of one game. But then let's say you have a bad night again. Then the, then the conversation is going to be about, be about inconsistency. But if you can rack off these types of performances, not just Zion personally, but the Pelicans as a whole, can rack off these performances like that. Then the Lakers game will be a blip in the radar. It'll be just one of those, that was just a really bad game. And we got right, fixed it, moved on, got better, went on a run. All of that comes down to execution. I say it again and again with this team. It's about your execution. Nothing else matters. So, That's just something to continually look forward to. It's part of the identity of the Pelicans now because it's been a trend for a quarter of a season. And if it keeps holding through Christmas, through the new year, through the all-star break, well, then we're really going to know what this team is. And we're going to know what their Achilles heel will be. And it's that third quarter three-point defense. But let's transition to the Oklahoma City Thunder. Because they're one of the best teams in the West, surprisingly, and yet unsurprisingly. They had another overtime win versus Golden State. And three of their best players in this game. First one was Shea Gilgis-Alexander, again, because he always is. Scored 38 points on 15 of 30 shooting, 8 of 11 from the free throw line, 5 rebounds, 5 assists, 5 steals. Again. And one block. So he scored 30 or more in 8 of his last 10. And he has had 5 or more steals in 3 straight games through that game. Chet Holmgren added 21 points on 6 of 12 shooting. 8 of 8 from the free throw line with 7 rebounds and 3 blocks. And he forced overtime again, but this time not from the floor, but from a 3 point foul. By Draymond Green. And those three shots were converted. Because Chet Holmgren. Is a great free throw shooter. Then. J-Dub. Who I teased at the top of the show. Jalen Williams. Scored 28. Points. Shot 12 of 15. That's 80% from the floor. That's. Guys don't shoot 80% from the free throw line. He shot 80% from the floor. And he shot from everywhere, not just from inside. Five rebounds, two assists, three steals, and a block. And he has scored in double figures in every game he's played this season. He's only missed about three. The Thunder as a team against the Warriors, they scored 78 paint points. I've made it a point of contention for teams like the Mavs to defend against teams that can score in the paint like that, such as the Lakers. But I mean, the Thunder, this is another level. The Warriors have issues when they have to go into small ball. Kevon Looney's their biggest defender, and he's really their only big defender. The Thunder took advantage. 78 paint points. That's the second most by any team this season in the NBA, and it ties the most in franchise history. Seattle or OKC? Across the history of the Supersonics and the Thunder, 78 paint points ties the most ever. On top of that, the Thunder scored 35 points off turnovers. What? So, they tied the most by any team this season. And... Since the stat was recorded, points off turnovers, uh, points off turnovers were recorded, which was 2018-2019, that's the most in team history as well. Credit to them because the Warriors had a season-high 29 turnovers. That's how you score 35 points off turnovers. So the Warriors have more issues than just paint defense. Really, that's the fact that they keep turning over the ball is why they can't get anywhere this season. But I just wanted to highlight the success of the Thunder, especially with a... who's considered a powerhouse team in the Golden State Warriors, although given their struggles, we're not exactly sure how they're going to finish. They still need to iron things out and make sure that everyone's healthy and everyone's on the same page and everyone's shooting well because even Clay Thompson is going up and down. But Steph has been the main constant. And he almost won, won them that game anyway but there are a lot of things to clean up on the Warrior side. But for the Thunder, man, they're looking real good. They're looking like one of the best teams in the West, and they look like it's going to be sustainable throughout the entirety of the season. So, they are here. As I've said before, they're not coming. They're here. In our last segment, I do want to touch on Mark Cuban selling the Mavs again, and it's because we've gotten some new information. On top of that, I also want to recap the last of the in-season tournament and bring up some upcoming matchups and topics. Why not? See you in the next segment. All right, let's talk about the Las Vegas Sands. Why do I bring them up? The owner of the Las Vegas Sands, Dr. Miriam Adelson, has purchased a majority stake in the Mavericks as of about a week or two ago. But there's been some reporting as to where this potential new arena could be, where this resort could possibly be. And I didn't want to just look at... Someone's reporting and just an article. I wanted to do I wanted to do the due diligence that these reporters did as well. So in the Dallas Morning News, this is where I had seen the article, or I had this is the first article I had read about it. The headline reads Entity tied to Las Vegas Sands family made huge Irving land buy before striking Mavs deal. The 108 acre property is across from the former home of the Dallas Cowboys, the now demolished Texas stadium two weeks ago or at least two episodes ago I talked about how there was, there was a there was a potential at least the potential to build a new arena for the Mavericks a new casino resort around the area of the Trinity River and in Dallas there's not just you know, the main Trinity River but there's also the Elm Fork, Trinity River, and and there's even more in between all of that. Where the old Texas Stadium lives, or at least the the now demolished Texas Stadium, lives right by the Elm Fork, Trinity River. So there's plenty of water along that area. It's not that specific lot that they actually bought. It's the lot just to the northeast, And it was purchased for about $22.4 million. Now, the Dallas Morning News article referenced all the work done by Tim Rogers of D Magazine. And what Rogers wrote about was how he was able to figure out all of these specific details of how this land purchase was made. So, according to Dallas Central Appraisal District records, there's an entity called Village Walk RE2 LLC. The capital that he writes here, the, not the capital, excuse me, the address is 800 Capitol Street in Houston. But that address leads to a law firm of Winston & Strawn. So then... You got to do a bit more digging. The company's taxpayer number is 320 Now, this is public information, so I don't, I don't worry about putting that information out there. The mailing address for the account, I'm quoting the article now, is 5420 South Durango Drive, Las Vegas, Nevada. That also happens to be the address of the Las Vegas Sands Corporation, which is owned by Miriam Adelson, the woman who now controls the Dallas Mavericks. And I will make sure to link these articles and everything that is referenced in the description of this episode. I wanted to do my due diligence and find it myself as well. So I found the deed from the Same source that Tim Rogers has mentioned, the Dallas Central Appraisal District, as well as the public search for the county of Dallas. Now, what I saw here were three grantors and a grantee. Obviously, the grantee is Village Walk RE2 LLC, but the grantors were all Village Walk RE LLC, Village Walk Realty LLC, Village Walk Riverside LLC a little odd to me. The address that's listed when I pull up Village Walk RE2 LLC, however, actually is 2121 North Pearl Street, suite 900, Dallas, Texas, 75230. That just happens to be the Dallas branch of the same law firm, Winston and Strawn, that was listed in the, with the Houston address. The Deed shows the Houston address purchased the land. The information on opencorporates.com shows a Dallas address instead. But it's still the same company, a branch of a Delaware LLC. That's another conversation for another day. And then after putting in their tax number into the Texas Comptroller of Public Accounts account, um, website, That taxpayer number showed up, and the address that's listed is, of course, 5420 South Durango Drive, Las Vegas, Nevada. So, what does that all mean? It means that they are, at least the Adelson family, is trying to build a casino, resort, and or arena, on that land, just to the northeast of the old Texas Stadium, right by the Trinity River. That's where you should expect to see some kind of development over the next eight years as they await for the Mavs to leave the American Airlines Center and finish their lease in 2031. The casino can't be put there until Texas legalizes gambling, but they can have a resort. They can have an arena. The arena can also be done early, and they can hold other events until the Mavs come in. But for those of you who live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, just be aware that's exactly where it's going to be, right by the old Texas stadium. I just wanted to provide some more information about that because I talked about it a couple weeks ago and it just, it interested me. And now that we are done with that, let's move on to recap the in-season tournament bracket. In the NBA Cup semifinals, (laughs) rolls off the tongue a lot better. The in-season tournament semifinals the Pacers defeated the Milwaukee Bucks 128 to 119, and the Lakers blew out the Pelicans 133 to 89. And so that led to an NBA Cup final or an in-season tournament final championship game between the Lakers and the Pacers. And the Lakers ended up winning 123 to 109. LeBron James won the in-season tournament MVP. NBA Cup MVP. I'm telling you, Adam Silver, that's a much better name. An NBA Cup final and be a cup mvp let go of the in-season tournament it's just a bit redundant so now that that is all well and done i would say that it was it was a success but i'm a basketball fan and love watching early there were more people tuned in than normal and there was a bit of a buzz especially because of the courts and and all the advertising around it i think it was a great move by adam silver And the way that the players embraced it is what helped sell the importance of an event and a tournament like this. Now, there are probably going to be some tweaks in seasons to come so that it can be perfected. But for a first time, for a sport that, at least in America, doesn't have that kind of opportunity, this was a great inaugural event. And I'm looking forward to the next one. But for now, we got a lot more good stuff coming up this NBA season. Next week, we're going to recap week eight. And we'll preview the Christmas slate because we got five good games. And spoiler alert, the Mavs are on that slate. Before we go, I do want to mention that the Dallas Cowboys blew out the Philadelphia Eagles. Next up, they have the Buffalo Bills. So now this is the first game out of the way of a rough stretch for the Cowboys. They took care of business at home, extended their home winning streak to 15 games. But now they got to visit Buffalo, who just beat the Chiefs in Arrowhead. On top of that, after they play Buffalo, no matter how that game ends, they still got to play Miami and they still have to play Detroit. So it's not over yet even if they were to win out, let's say Philly wins out as well, Philly would end up winning the NFC East and take back one of the top two seeds. San Francisco already has a number on Dallas as well. I think, they, I think they have a better conference record too. So even if both the 49ers and the Cowboys won out, the Cowboys probably wouldn't have the number one seed. So it's important for the Cowboys to take care of business with these hard teams like Buffalo and Miami and Detroit because I mean Philadelphia is right behind you with a much easier schedule down the line, but that's for that's for them. That's for Sunday. We'll deal with that when we get there last but not least, let's talk about the national and local NBA tip-offs on the national slate Wednesday, December 13th, the Lakers will play the Spurs at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central on NBA TV. On Thursday, December 14th, the Cavaliers will visit the Boston Celtics at 7.30 Eastern, 6.30 Central on NBA TV, followed by the Warriors and the Clippers at 10.30, 9.30 Central on NBA TV. Friday, December 15th, the Lakers will play the Spurs again. p.m. Eastern, 6.30 p.m. Central on ESPN. Followed by the Knicks and the Suns at 10 p.m. Eastern and 9 p.m. Central on ESPN. And then Saturday, the Utah Jazz and the Sacramento Kings will play at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central on, on NBA TV. That's Saturday, December 16th. In your local areas, if you're in Dallas, New Orleans, Oklahoma City, Wednesday, December 13th, the New Orleans Pelicans will play the Washington Wizards at 87 Central on Bally Sports New Orleans and MNMT. I believe that's supposed to say Monument. It's a new. It used to be NBC Sports Washington, but I I guess it's a new broadcaster for the Wizards. Thursday, December 14th, the Minnesota Timberwolves will play the Dallas Mavericks at 8:30 7:30 Central on Bally Sports North Extra for those of you in the Minnesota area and Bally Sports Southwest. And the Oklahoma City Thunder will play the Sacramento Kings at ten nine Central on Bally Sports Oklahoma and and NBC Sports California. Then on Friday, december fifteenth, the Pelicans will play the Hornets, the Charlotte Hornets at seven six central on Bally Sports New Orleans and Bally Sports Southeast. And then Saturday, December sixteenth, the Thunder and the Denver Nuggets will play at 9-8 Central on Valley Sports Oklahoma and Altitude Sports, for those of you in the Denver area. And then the Mavs will also play the Trailblazers at the same time, at 9-8 Central on Valley Sports Southwest and Root Sports. So that is it for this episode. Thank you guys so much for continuing to watch and listen. I continually see downloads and views as the days roll by, and I can't thank you enough for your support, so... Continue to watch, continue to listen, and tell all your friends. Spread the word. And I will catch you guys in the next one. That does it for me. This has been The Control Room. I'm your host, Esrael Johannes, signing off.